0: Well, what the heck is going on with inflation? It's in the news and it's happening contemporaneous with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In this episode of The Last Optimist, I might be slightly more pessimistic. So let's talk about energy, the transition, Ukraine and Russia. The invasion of the uh, country of Ukraine is continuing to be top of news and for good reason. One of the top issues at the top of the news is what it's doing to world oil prices, world natural gas prices, and the spillover effect of those energy commodities into other prices, inflation in short. I mean, crude oil is up roughly 200% over the pre-war, pre-war uh, average levels of the, the prior uh, four or five years. The cost of natural gas, at least shipped as in liquefied form to Asia, is up about 600%. Uh, prices are on a tear. No one really has a good idea when they'll peak and come back down, which is what I wanna talk about. Keep in mind, when we talk about commodities, commodities are an odd thing, It doesn't mean that you have to take a lot of the commodity off the market to have big changes and very small changes in commodity supply and demand have very big impacts on world prices. In fact, the oil European Russian connection that represents about 5% of world oil production and the worry that some or all of that will be taken out of circulation, whether by Russian malfeasance or European sanctions is what's driving market jitters in oil prices. And on the Asian front, where 70% of the world's liquefied natural gas goes, prices are also jittery and have soared post invasion. And that only represents that share, that LNG going to Asia, that represents only about five or 6% of world natural gas production. So that's, that's the story we, we need to talk about and to focus on and, and critically, the response that's coming uh, in other markets and politically. The other market we have to talk about is food, wheat. Uh, oil is used, natural gas is used in wheat production, obviously oil in the machines and less visibly to most people, but now in the news, natural gas to make nitrogen fertilizer. Wheat prices, uh, they were already on a rise. On a, They were up something like 60% from 2020 to pre-invasion. They jumped another 50% post-invasion. So the last few years I've seen wheat prices rise 200% that ripples through the entire market. And it the war premium, well, that, that Caused another escalation, but that escalation was caused not just because of energy prices, pushing the wheat prices up. Now keep in mind that nitrogen fertilizer and it's it's made using natural gas and the increased cost of natural gas and increased cost of nitrogen fertilizer uh, are responsible for nearly half of the war premium increased cost of wheat. They're all linked. And Russia and Ukraine together Happen to also be about 30% of the world's wheat production. Backing back upstream to the inputs, Russia is about 60 percent of the world's exports of nitrogen as a fertilizer. The commodity linkages between oil, energy, gas, wheat, and food are critical, are longstanding, and the escalations that we're seeing and the commodity fears are, of course, what they call war premium and quite serious. And what's more serious about it is not whether it's high, today it is, but how long it stays high, what governments do in response to these kinds of uh, price shocks, whether what governments are doing, both our government and in Europe, will moderate the price shock, contain it, cause it to go down or inflate it more. That's the issue of the day. And it matters for obvious reasons. Food and fuel, (laughs) let's just say again, and I I know I've said this before, I'm gonna say it again, food and fuel are utterly central to survival, to the existence of civilization. This is, as the uh, Gen Z's might say in a technical term, this is a no duh, of course it's critical. What's important to keep in mind is, One of the most remarkable achievements of the last half millennia, last 500 years, has been the reduction in the share of an economy that is consumed by getting food and fuel. Put differently, for most of history, between 60 and 80% of an entire economy's output or entire GDP of any economy has been associated associated with acquiring food and fuel. The dawn of the industrial revolution, fueled by hydrocarbons, initially by coal, then oil and gas, is what drove the massive collapse in the share of economies that are used to acquire food and fuel. It's now about 15%, 10 or 15% of, of wealthy economies have their GDP associated with buying food and fuel. This is a good thing because it frees up money to do other things like clean up the environment, protect the environment, to have health care, to spend time in education, to spend time in entertainment. All the things that make life worth other than survival are made possible because societies spend far less on food and fuel in the modern era than any time in history. So the direction of the costs of food and fuel matter. They matter existentially. If there's an existential threat to society and civilization, it's escalating the costs of food and fuel. It's also a threat to political stability. The Statista has put together very recently uh, a clever graph showing the soaring costs of food and their linkage to political instability in the Middle East. In fact, they show a one-to-one correlation with the a rise of the food price crisis of 2008, which we've forgotten because of it's now it's now ancient history, and the Arab Spring of 2011, it's not a coincidence that food prices were escalating radically right before both of those uh, political disruptions. If we look at domestically, and we had headlines this past week, Los Angeles County, a uh, gas prices topped six dollars a gallon for the first time ever in American history. Well, that got a reaction. The governor of California is proposing billions of dollars of handouts as quote relief from record gasoline prices. Politicians are afraid of uh, two things. One is not getting elected (laughs) and gasoline prices. And gasoline prices have a huge impact, have always had a huge impact in the modern era on political fears and political reactions. We're seeing it already. It's uh, not surprising. And in fact, it's appropriate because gasoline and diesel fuel in particular are extraordinarily important parts of an economy. But we want, in terms of the function of an economy, for self-evident reasons, but we want them to be cheap. Economies want those fuels, those fuel inputs to be cheap. They want them to be in the background or to put it in, in, in another phrase that my colleague Peter Huber and I used in our long ago book, The Bottom as Well, we want energy costs to be in the twilight. That's what technology does. That's what the advance of progress does. It's moved the cost of fuels into the twilight until those commodities suddenly inflate, and not inflate by a little bit, but by huge amounts. And those inflations are caused by bad policies, um, policy mistakes, and by wars. The war premium always has an impact on energy prices. The magnitude of the war premium doesn't have to do with the the magnitude of the actual physical disruption, but rather the dependencies. If we think in terms coming back to, to the effect of Russia and uh, its invasion of Ukraine, and just again, recalibrate the state of play uh, on Europe's, Europe's fuel dependence on Russia, because that's been the trigger uh, for the latest commodity price spike, but it's the trigger for the spike, not for the trend. The trend is what I'm gonna talk about, but first let's finish with the spike. Uh, Europe depends on Russia for 40% of its natural gas and 25% of its oil, or put inversely. uh, For Russia, the European continent is its number one customer for oil. 55% of all Russian oil goes to Europe. About a third goes to China. We don't buy very much of it, less than 5% pre-sanction. For natural gas, 70% of, of Russian natural gas goes to Europe. Hence the, uh, hence the crisis, hence the challenge in Europe, sanctioning those uh, commodity fuel flows because Europe can't survive without them. And of course, we, we know that uh, Russia is uh, a big player globally, is a share of total world production. It's non-trivial, in fact, one of the big three. But it, here's what's interesting about commodity markets. When you're one of the big three, you don't have to be like the Middle East. Middle East is a third of world oil production. Russia is about twelve percent. And For the record, U.S. is about eighteen percent of world oil production. <clears> twelve percent <throat> uh, is is it, it seems like a small number. You know, if I gave you a, a ten or twelve percent discount on something you want to buy, that's nice, but it's not earth shattering. It's not world changing to your life. Uh, if I gave you ten percent more in your savings, that's nice, uh, but it's it doesn't. It's not an existential threat to your savings to lose 10% of supply of your savings. But in commodity markets, changes of a few percent are enormous because commodities are critical and commodities take time to produce. That's the key thing. It's the velocity of the additional supply. In the, it, by that, it's the slow velocity of additional supply that drives the markets wild when unexpected decreases happen And it drives markets wild in the other direction, down if unexpected increases in supply happen, whatever the reason. So the Ukraine effect on energy, whether it has a energy reset, which I'm speculating it will, but the energy markets, the energy commodity markets impacts of the Ukraine invasion are already clear in the political landscape. And the political landscape will be at the first order what determines what happens. Ultimately, technology is what matters in the physics of energy, but politicians can, uh, can overwhelm uh, rational options, <laughs> state the obvious. In the wake of the uh, Ukraine invasion by Russia, uh, Elon Musk tweeted, and I quote, hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Pretty interesting coming from Elon Musk. It was, as I've said before, the tweet heard round the world. It's, it, it, he's right. Uh, he wasn't saying he's not gonna make more Teslas and that we don't need more Teslas. He's saying in effect, we need both. He's right, especially given what we've learned about the sensitivity of markets to relatively small disruptions in the commodities. The EU president uh, contemporane- contemporaneously said something a little different, and I'll quote again, the quicker we switch to renewables and hydrogen, the quicker we'll be truly independent from Russia. Okay, and of course, this past week, President Biden was uh, in Europe, and and he said, and I quote, "We need to double down on our clean energy goals." End quote. He also said that uh, he pledged that the United States would help uh, export more LNG, liquefied natural gas, to Europe to help them delink uh, from the Russian uh, pipelines. However, that's not that was not followed up by any policy actions that would be materially different in terms of expanding the US production of LNG, construction of natural gas pipelines to get the LNG, the natural gas to where it needs to be to liquefy, or the construction of US ports and facilities to export it. In fact, uh, the administration is doing precisely the opposite. So it, it is the right thing to do, to pledge to help Europe to get more natural gas from America, but to do it, we'll have to see actual actions. So far, the commodity markets don't believe those actions are real. So let's back up a notch to talk about what's going to happen in this now a great uh divide between the energy policies that we want to implement going forward and the impacts of those energy policies on commodity markets and critically on inflation. Me again, I've said this many times, and I'm gonna say it again because it's an important, it's an important baseline to keep in mind. After the last two decades of something on the order of $5 trillion plus of spending on uh, wind, solar, and alternatives to oil and gas, the world's dependency on oil and gas and coal has decreased by just two percentage points. The world is still an economy powered primarily by hydrocarbons and ironically, uh, wood, Wood, uh, burning wood globally. Still, supplies far more energy than solar panels do. Solar panels will overtake wood, you know, in a few years. But it's been a long slog. Bottom line is, the world uses lots of hydrocarbons. They're critical, far more critical than wind and solar, to keeping lights on, airplanes flying, goods flowing, fertilizer made, food grown, and delivered to state to tables. Nonetheless, governments made it very clear, including this, our government. Right now, in the European governments, that they plan to double down on green energy policies, on sort of climate-oriented uh, spending and mandates. Unsurprisingly, uh, private markets are following the money, the government money, government money in this case, and mandates. Uh, last year, in 2021, it was a record year for venture capital, uh, capital raises for new new uh, venture funds and existing venture funds to spend and invest on uh, startups and new ventures on non-oil and gas on so-called climate energy tech ventures. There was something approaching $50 billion raised last year over the last decade of enthusiasms, in particular the last few years of enthusiasms uh, in government policy circles in Europe and the United States for alternative energy, for so-called green tech uh, technologies. The cumulative amount of money raised in the private venture market is over $100 billion. It's a lot of money. Uh, a lot. Of, I think a lot of good will come out of that, by the way. I'm not uh, naive uh, about the possibilities of you know, pretty interesting, even radical improvements in some of these technologies coming from all that money being spent. There's some interesting stuff gonna happen, but will it happen fast enough? and It would be meaningful enough to shift the commodity markets inflationary pressures. Well, Here's the irony. All the money being spent on green tech instead of oil, gas and coal, for that matter, will actually drive more inflation and not contain inflation. It won't reduce the world's needs for oil, gas and coal in the future. In fact, the International Energy Agency's own forecasts show that oil, gas and coal, hydrocarbons collectively, will supply well over half of the world's energy uh, even on accelerated transit, energy transition policies, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, over half the world's energy still coming from oil, gas and coal, even with the double down philosophy. Yeah, yes, I know there's lots of aspirational hand-waving claims that we can uh, go to zero hydrocarbons in 20 or 30 years. These are, uh, to put it politely, really silly uh, forecasts. There's, there's no mechanism to make that happen in those kind of timeframes. And time matters when it comes to commodities. You know, how fast you can supply something uh, determines uh, market's perceptions of what its price will be in the future because if demand is growing faster than supply, this is sort of econ 101, if demand is growing faster than supply, prices go up everywhere, always, through all of history. So let's look at the implications of uh, the private markets spending their $100 billion chasing green chasing energy and the public markets spending even more than that uh, and implementing mandates that chase green energy. There, there are some interesting commodity in inflationary implications. And we can we can map this out in very simple terms. You just count the quantities of the materials, the commodities that are needed to build those machines. So if you look at what the Again, the International Energy Agency, the IEA has done, they did this a year year ago, others have done these analyses. And I've spoken earlier about this study and written about it, but just again, to remind everyone uh, where we stand in terms of what will be required of energy transition commodities, energy transition minerals to meet green goals. The IEA has pointed out that world production of lithium will have to go up 42 fold. That's not 42%, that's over 4,000%. So production of graphite will have to go up over 2,500%. The production of cobalt globally over 2,000%. The production of nickel, pretty common metal, will have to go up nearly 2,000% And rare earths, which get talked a lot about. uh, They're not rare, they have rare properties. Uh, We rarely mine them in America. Most of them are mined in China these days, but production of those will have to go up 700%. So the question you would have to ask is two parts. One is um, a technical question. Could production go up that much? I'll get to that in a second. But more importantly, in the attempt to have production go up that much, what is the impact on those commodities? Keep in mind, these are all commodities. These are newly discovered minerals. Mankind has known these minerals uh, exist for a long time. And we've been mining these minerals for a very long time. For all of modern history, at least, uh, some of them were, were only discovered you know, a few centuries ago, but in terms of modern society, we have been mining these commodities at commodity levels for decades and decades, in some cases for centuries. Uh, the reason demand is, goes up, as the IEA pointed out, is because of the quantity of these specific kinds of minerals that are needed to produce, to manufacture the machinery of the energy transition, that is to build wind turbines, to build solar photovoltaic panels and and arrays, uh, to build offshore wind turbines, to build the batteries for electric cars and to build the electric motors for electric cars. All those things require uh, lots of minerals, chromium and then the cobalt and the manganese, and of course the nickel and the lithium for the batteries, self evidently for lithium batteries and lots more copper. I mean, it takes roughly 300% to 400% more copper to build a single electric car than it does to build uh, a conventional car. The IEA did us the favor. Uh, again, others have done, done these analyses, but the IEA is certainly a credible, a credible entity and an advocate of the energy transition by pointing out that the quantities of materials needed per unit of energy produced, quantity of minerals, that sort of melange of minerals I mentioned, uh, will have to go up somewhere between, oh, th- overall 300% to 1,000% collectively, more than we're now using to build the same, to produce same kind of energy with natural gas power plants and gasoline powered vehicles. Mm -hmm. The cars in particular, uh, which is, and again, the electric car remains the the icon of the energy transition, Cars, electric cars in particular are extraordinarily materials or minerals dependent compared to a conventional uh, automobile. It's not just the battery, the uh, the electric drivetrain requires lots more copper. The battery, because it weighs a half a ton, requires that the vehicle be made with lots more aluminum than a conventional car to offset the fact that in order to replace 150 pounds of gasoline, you need a thousand pound battery. So you offset the thousand pound penalty by using hundreds of pounds more of aluminum. Aluminum is very energy intensive, which most people know, and aluminum, of course, has to be mined. Uh, The consumption of everything associated with making a car uh, goes up by literally orders of magnitude. So, well, let's back up one step to wind and solar again, just to point out not just the exotic things, uh, like zinc and manganese and neodymium have to be uh, produced at great volumes to make those machines. To make wind and solar uh, utility scale power plants, you need a lot more steel and glass and concrete too. Uh, in fact, you need about a thousand percent more per unit of energy delivered of those common materials. Those aren't hard to find, by the way. They're all commodities as well. Uh, but the kind of demand increases are significant. But more importantly, as uh, world markets uh, become ever more hostile to investing in oil, gas, and coal, the costs of oil, gas, and coal go up, and steel, glass, and concrete are very energy intensive and consume large quantities of oil, gas, and coal to produce them. So their prices go up. So commodity traders are, uh, are interesting uh, uh, in, an interesting slice of the, uh, the, uh, the market, the way the world functions. Com- commodity traders... Uh, have existed since, well, since all of civilization. Commodities have always existed because things that are important, uh, whether it's steel or wheat, uh, or in more ancient times, because copper has been mined since before recorded history, uh, trading in copper, trading in olive oil, things that are important to the world, the world's economies, and things that are produced at volume, therefore, because they're important, are traded. And there have always been traders, the, the middleman and traders and buyers pay today a price typically profoundly influenced by what they think about the supply in the near future. That means that the in, in, in economic markets, the expectation of a relatively small change in supply can have a very big change in the price today. And that's think about it for obvious reasons. If uh, if you think it's going to get a, it's going to be hard for you to get something that's critical, gasoline to get to work, uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer to grow wheat uh, for the next cycle, and the supplier knows that they're not going to be able to get as much, you if you're the last buyer of record, you might have to pay a little more. And if you pay a little more to take that marginal barrel or bushel off the market, the next guy has to pay a little more than you did and so on, it escalates. What happens is that in oil and gas markets, for example, uh, changes uh, in expected supplier demand of just a couple of percentage points. That's a couple of million barrels per day, but it's just a, that's a couple of percentage points of getting the future wrong, guessing well, it's, there's a recession. So you lose 2% of demand. There's slightly higher economic growth. You have 2% more demand, or there's a, a war which takes a couple percentage points of supply off the market. Those kinds of changes in oil and gas markets have uh, more than a tenfold impact on the percentage change in price that causes prices, of, frankly, to go wild. A 6% loss of oil supply from the 1979 Iranian revolution caused global oil prices to rise 200% practically overnight. So small percentage changes when, they, when they're a part of a very big market can have a very big impact. So last year, 2021, we saw electric vehicle sales doubled globally. Uh, wind and solar installations roughly doubled as well in uh, 2021 compared to the pri- prior year. That's a lot. It's a lot of growth. Uh, it's still a very small share of world energy and world transportation. Uh, EVs today are common in many senses, but there's still only 2% of all the cars on the road and solar and become ubiquitous in many, many ways, but they still supply less than 3% of the world energy. However, 2% and 3% of a very big market is very significant. We have, in fact, reached the tipping point where the trading in the underlying commodities for electric vehicles and wind and solar now move prices. The marginal demand dictated by the incredible minerals requirements, materials requirements for the green tech world are now... Significant. They are significant in terms of cost impacts, the trading world, uh, the whole commodities exchanges are now whipsawed by very small relative changes in shares of market. Uh, let's use let's use as exhibit one the um, pre-Ukraine uh, run up in lithium prices because lithium is essential for lithium batteries. So from January 2020 to January 2022, that two-year period the incredible increase in enthusiasm and purchases for electric vehicles in the world. Again, remember, we're talking 2% of all the world's cars, but still, that that enthusiasm has seen uh, lithium prices rise 570%, nearly 600% rise in lithium prices. That alone, by the way, is enough to increase the the cost of the battery because that's a big change. And so some electric uh, vehicle makers are already... Uh, increasing the cost of their electric car almost entirely because of the cost of lithium, but not just that, because of the other minerals. The other things you need to make an electric car or a wind turbine, solar rays, or nickel, copper, and aluminum. So if we look again at the same time period, the two years from January 2020 to January 2022, cobalt's up over 120%. Copper went up a couple hundred percent. Nickel went up a couple hundred percent. Aluminum prices went up about 150%. And then interestingly, this is a a typical of commodity markets that we see this in oil commodity markets and natural gas commodity markets. When you get an unexpected uh, discontinuity or expectation of a discontinuity in that commodity's availability. So if if the markets begin to worry that some share of supply might soon be taken away, uh, prices can go wild. And markets can quote break. Uh, on March eighth, twenty twenty two, the nickel market, to use the phrase that one trading uh, publication used, the nickel market broke. Nickel prices soared in in hours uh, by hundreds of percent. The the exchange in London closed trading on nickel for a week. Why did the nickel market break and soar? Well, two things. One, a nickel demand uh, had been rising because of uh, its call for making green energy machines. Supply doesn't rise. In fact, hasn't changed significantly in years. Supply can't rise commensurately. Prices are rising and a, and a big trader in China made a bet. He made a bet pre-Ukraine. He got on the wrong side of the bet after the invasion started because what happened is that the market, the world began to worry about what would happen to Russia's share of shipping nickel to the world. Russia produces 10% of the world's nickel. It's kind of interesting. It's roughly the comparable share of nickel that Russia has as a world share of oil. Russia also produces about 4% of the world's copper and about 6% of the world's aluminum. So if we take a look at the charts and and see what happened to uh, nickel prices in copper prices and aluminum commodity prices over the last oh, few years, four or five years, you can see they've been trending up following the commodity demand, that uh, pressure from essentially green energy plans. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, uh, you know we're, we've gone up a couple hundred percent, 200% of nickel, but then when the war broke out, uh, prices really started to spike because of the fear of a loss of a few percentage points of supply from one of the biggest suppliers in the world, Russia. So we got a, we've got a, a premium from the war. Is that a permanent premium? Probably not. We don't know how the war is gonna end or when it'll end, but it, wars end, um, fortunately. Uh, we all hope it ends sooner rather than later. So what will the world, when the war ends, uh, will world prices for the critical commodities that Russia has an influence on, wheat, nitrogen fertilizer, potash fertilizer, aluminum, copper, steel as well, by the way. Uh, will, will, the, will the world's commodity prices relax back? Yes, they will, but they'll relax back to the trend of the last five years, which is a constant escalation in the commodity prices because demand for green energy plans uh, is exceeding supply. So the Ukrainian invasion is a shock that's illuminating that the markets were stressed. That's why the prices escalated so much, so quickly. It's a war premium that wouldn't have happened if the markets weren't already tight because of the incredible demands being placed on world mines by the mandates and the spending on wind, solar, and batteries. So let's take a look at what that has meant. You'd expect to see it in the final product price of the Green machines. And we do. I mean, the minerals, the commodity minerals that are used to make a battery uh, and to make a solar module now comprise 60 to 70% of the cost of the battery or the solar uh, module. Uh, Look, put differently, what this means is that the, the world has seen engineers so dramatically improve the manufacturing efficacy of both solar panels and batteries that the share of the cost of those products that's associated with labor, assembly, the technology has dropped to 30 to 40% of the the total cost of the final product. That's a remarkable accomplishment. And if that's cut in half again, which which it probably will be by the way, then that will reduce the price of batteries and solar uh, modules because you could do the arithmetic here. If I take 30% of the costs in the overhead Cut that in half, you got a roughly 15% decline in the cost of the final product. However, what's going on is that 60 to 70% of the cost of the battery or the solar module is now associated with the mineral commodities. <laughs> and as I just pointed out, those mineral commodity prices are gone wild. And they didn't go wild just because of the Ukraine premium, they were going wild beforehand. So, what happened? Well, we, we actually know. Uh, battery prices have been declining, uh, it's in the news constantly, and we're being told that it's a revolution and it is a, a significant revolution to have the kinds of batteries that go into cars decline by three to 400% over the last decade. It's a big deal. That's why electric cars are actually feasible even though they're still expensive. But what happened in 2021 is that the the, the long running, decade dec, long decline in lithium battery prices Radically slowed down. In the fact, they only went down about five or six percent in twenty twenty one, and now lithium battery prices overall, the average of the world, is, are forecast to go up by five or six percent in twenty twenty two. If I were guessing today, I bet they go up more than that, given given the the war premium and the uh, the double down mandates that are being implemented both here and in Europe to pursue more green machines. But the real key point here is that the um, The idea that we're going to see continual radical declines in the cost of batteries is, well, to coin a phrase that I used in my report, it's magical thinking. That's not what's happening, it's the opposite. We see the same effect, by the way, with solar modules. We're being told that solar power is cheap and going to be getting cheaper and it's been getting cheaper. In fact, all of government planning and all the forecasts for increasing the use of solar power on America's grids and the world grids are all predicated on the assumption that solar modules will get cheaper and cheaper in the future. They got cheaper, there's no question. It is revolutionary to have uh, the cost of solar modules uh, a 10th what they were uh, 20 years ago. But if we look at more recent history, the last five years, the decline in solar module prices ended roughly 2020, and it's been rising since then. In fact, it's up about 50% since then. Why? Because 60 to 70% of the cost of a solar module is associated with the commodity material inputs, and those commodity material inputs have been rising, again, pre-Ukraine war premium. When it comes to wind turbines, wind turbines themselves, about 20% of their overall cost is in the commodity materials. Steel alone is a huge factor in the cost of building wind turbines. and uh, Steel prices are up 50% pre-Ukraine war premium. And again, to calibrate everybody why the Ukraine war would have a premium on steel, Russia is not the biggest producer of steel in the world, but it's 10%. That's material. So what's going to happen now? Well, solar module prices have been going up. They're forecast to go up next year. No one is really putting out any long-term forecasts yet. I'll put one out. I think they'll be going up for quite a few years yet. We'll see how the market reacts to commodity price pressure uh, in general over the coming years. Talk about that in a second. But there's no evidence that commodity price pressure is going to be reduced on the inputs to make solar modules or batteries or wind turbines. In fact, look, let's let's talk about what the evidence is. The idea that we should now double down on existing uh, plans to make an energy transition happen, will have consequence on material demand and consequence on the share of commodity minerals that are used for energy purposes compared to the share of commodity minerals used for all other purposes. Obviously nickel is used to make steel, not just to make electric car batteries. Obviously uh, copper is used to do a lot of things other than make electric cars solar arrays and wind turbines. So what will impact inflation is a change in the market dynamic of a new player on the world stage as a significant share of world consumption. But differently, up up until 2020, the energy market's share of critical minerals was minor. That is somewhere between five and 10 or 15% of world use of cobalt, nickel, copper, rare earths, and even lithium, Uh, minor share of the world demand for all purposes went into energy markets. The policies that are now in place will move the energy markets as a share of all demand for all other purposes, the share of minerals going to energy markets will rise to 50 to 80%. If we have that happen, and it may happen, that's the direction, it is profoundly inflationary because the markets will see vicious competition for other uses for those minerals, other critical uses, from appliances to um, computers, frankly, to every in fact every every product of almost every kind has to be made from minerals. And if the minerals that are being used to make other products are seeing competition from the energy markets, energy markets that are being subsidized, then that by definition causes a commodity price inflation. So will markets respond? Will we mine more minerals? Yeah, of course we will. Uh, yeah, the world's already trying to mine more minerals, but that's the, the, the question you wanna know the answer to is, could we possibly mine enough minerals in the timeframes that policies hope to force? And, and are the markets planning to build enough mines to my, to produce that many minerals, we know the answer to that question. It's no. Uh, I'll call it the Paris impact. Let's say on lithium and nickel. By Paris, I mean plans that are now announced to build more uh, green energy machines. Uh, most countries are not implementing those plans, but the plans that are now announced, uh, and again, never mind the double down plans. Even with those plans, we we know for a fact. Because these data these data are readily available, we know for a fact that the world is not now nor planning to build enough nickel mines or lithium mines to produce the necessary quantities by the year 2030. Never mind beyond that. So, how much more do we need? Well, there are, there are some very big mines in the world. Um, if we look at the world's biggest uh, lithium mine, it's called the Greenbushes mine in, in Western Australia. The world would need. 20 more of the world's biggest lithium mines, 20 more of them. Each one, the cost to build one is a 5 to $10 billion range, the the time to build a new lithium mine. The uh, IEA says the average global time to build a new mine is about 16 years. In the United States, it's double that or or never in many cases. It's a lot of mines. It's a, a lot of mining, a lot of capital. There's no evidence that those kinds of commitments are being made by anybody Anywhere Now, this administration uh, is, is hinting this past week that they might implement the Defense Production Act to uh, encourage the uh, increase of mining in the United States. The key with the Defense Production Act uh, is that the money has to come from somewhere. So I think the challenge will be, because the private market is not going to uh, respond under the Defense Production Act using private capital to take the risk to build mines that no one's really sure the world will really want, whether the plans will really stay in place as these uh, commodity prices inflate. But if Congress were to provide the money, the mines could be built. I guess I would take take that bet, uh, the, the bet on whether or not Congress will provide that kind of money or not in the United States or European countries through the equivalent. I take the bet, uh, as you might imagine, on which side of the bet I would take. Or consider uh, nickel. I mean, how many more of the world's biggest nickel mines will we need? I mean, the biggest nickel mine in the world is in, uh, in Indonesia. Uh, we're gonna need about 20 more of those. And those also cost somewhere between five and 10 or $20 billion each to build. Uh, De novo also would take at least a decade more like two decades, but assume we could accelerate the average sixteen years down to ten years. Ten years means that we won't be opening the first of those new mines until the year twenty thirty two. That's two years after we were supposed to have produced all the supply we would need to get to the twenty thirty goals. These are these are uh, to put it indelicately uh, impossibilities. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. So let me let me uh, wrap up with two quick observations about what this means. Well, the world's going to chase these mineral commodities we already are doing it and our leaders both on both sides of the atlantic are telling us they plan to double down i have no doubt that they're going to try to make good on their plans that's what politicians do Uh, that's the nature of politics it's worth keeping in mind that uh, most of the mining uh, for these minerals today and most of it that's being planned for the future is not taking place in either europe or the united states taking place in countries like Indonesia. Australia is a big player in in my homeland, Canada, but a lot of it's in Africa and South America. A lot of it's in China. More critically, just like oil, you can't can't take oil out of the ground and put it in your car. You have to have refineries to make gasoline. Just like oil, uh, the stuff that's mined, the minerals that are contained in the rock have to be refined and processed. That's the critical part of the ecosystem that's being ignored in all the public discussions. Chemical processing and refining of uh, minerals is extremely capital intensive, would add hundreds of billions of dollars more of capital investment needed to meet the kinds of demands that are being expected for these commodities. But in terms of where we are today, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that the dominant refiner of copper, is China, the dominant refiner of nickel, China, the dominant refiner of cobalt, 65% of the world's cobalt refi- refined in China, not mined there, 70% is mined in Congo, but almost 70% of it's refined in China. Of rare earths, no surprise to those of you who follow this issue. China, 90% of refining of rare earths in China. So when we, when we mine the rare earths in America at the moment, they get refined in China. And lithium refining, uh, China has 60% of the world's uh, chemical and refining processing to turn lithium into a useful material to make uh, batteries. US meanwhile, uh, U.S. imports about 100% of 17 key minerals, and we import over half of about 29 others. And those minerals that we do produce, many of it, many of them are, are refined overseas. We do have lots of mining and refining in America. It's just not expanded, and it's certainly not being encouraged to expand by policies that are meaningful. So we're going to have commodity price inflation on all of the minerals uh, that are part of the aspirational goals for doubling down on green energy. And we're gonna have commodity price inflation on uh, diesel fuel and gasoline. And we know this because the world has not been adding to reserves uh, at the normal rate. In fact, it's in the last year uh, has added one tenth as much as the previous 10 year yearly average of new reserves of oil and gas. We do not have policies in the United States and Europe that encourage more oil and gas infrastructure construction. In fact, we have the opposite. And yet we have U.S. and global demands for the commodity fuels, gasoline, natural gas, diesel fuel, uh, on a V-shaped recovery tear. Uh, U.S. is still not back to the same amount of annual driving on U.S. roads, it's coming. And the world is not even close to going back to global tourist uh, travel, that's coming too. And those markets are not gonna be driven by electric airplanes, electric cars. Yes, there'll be more electric vehicles on the road. They'll probably double again. So we'll go from a couple percent of the world's cars being electric to whole 4%. Meanwhile, that will move the meter, maybe a half of a percentage point decline in the petroleum used on the world's roads. Oil will remain a critical commodity. And because it's a commodity and because small changes in demand, have outsized changes in price, we can expect some surprises. Unpleasant ones probably. Uh, Let me end on a a slightly more upbeat note about what could happen on the upside for getting more mineral commodities. We know the answer to that. What looks like it's gonna happen is there's gonna be more regulation, but if there were, were more innovation, I mean, could technology come to the rescue of getting more minerals out of the earth more quickly more inexpensively? And the answer, of course, is of course it can. Of course it can, yes. Uh, In fact, interestingly, um, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates uh, have invested in a company, uh, I'll I'll name the company's Cobold Metals, uh, that is using artificial intelligence algorithms to go mining the data for existing exploration around the world in order to more rapidly identify high quality mineral bodies. And in fact, very recently, just in the middle of the week of last week's escalation in the Ukraine war, uh, the venture that the the two tech titans funded has begun exploration and exploratory drilling in Greenland for, for, uh, I believe, graphite and nickel, and I believe also cobalt. It's easy to look up what they're they're doing. So can technology help that? Absolutely, I've written that in my book again, uh, The cloud revolution, I talk about how the use of both advanced sensors, drones, and artificial intelligence, uh, especially supercomputing in the cloud will accelerate discovery, both of alternatives to how you can use metals and how to find more metals, how to mine them. But we don't get tenfold reductions. We, We might reduce the time from thinking about opening a mine to opening the mine from say 10 or 12 years, Maybe eight years, which would be would be economically astonishing, could easily happen. But it's eight to ten years, not eight to ten months or eight to ten weeks. And during that time, if demand exceeds supply, prices are going to go up. The other uh, potential uh, relief valve, if you like, on the on the mineral commodities areas and the labor the labor domains, we we are uh, as I've written about previously, and again, as in my book, The Cloud Revolution, we are short skilled labor in the construction trades, mining areas, and that shortage is is expanding. We need to accelerate our ability, not only to attract people to those skilled trades, because that will reduce costs. If we can amplify labor through robots and automation, if we can make people more productive, then you can produce more minerals at lower costs. That's the essence of productivity. There's some very exciting uh, new ventures going on, both on the, we'll call it the political side of, of training up the workforce. There's a new uh, venture just now, it's called the Build Strong Academy, which proposes to um, uh, train a million new trade workers over the next 15 years in the United States, all with private donors, local builders, nonprofits, very exciting market response. And that will be amplified by the fact that the uh, Virtual training, virtual simulators—you know, bringing the equivalent of flight simulators to learning how to run a backhoe—that's that began a number of years ago. That's accelerating. That will also accelerate our ability to get people into those markets, and that will matter because some of the cost increases that miners are facing are are coming from shortage of labor and increased labor costs. We're going to pay more for labor, but it would be—you could pay 50 percent more for. Uh, an employee if that employee is 70% more productive because of automation. So I'm very bullish on the longer term. Uh, I'm very optimistic that we will uh, dig our way out of this hole. I will say that I'm somewhat pessimistic that we'll do it in the shorter term. I'm gonna probably see some very unpleasant commodity inflation and therefore broader inflation in markets. Uh, It's gonna be a rough ride. Uh, I I will remain uh, optimistic and explore with you in future episodes. Of this podcast, where the optimism lies for the longer term, but in the short term, uh, we've got, uh, as they say, uh, with respect to prices, it's time to you know buckle up. It's going to be quite a ride. So that's it for uh, this episode of the Last Optimist. If you like uh, what I'm talking about and and the subject matter I'm focused on, please please let me know. Uh, Give me give me a rating. It's important. And also uh, in in the uh, in their, in their ratings, there's if you have a comment on, on something you'd like me to talk about or focus on uh, or focus more on, uh, please tell me. I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist.